As we continue our worship, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm chapter 10. That's Psalm 10, and if you're using the blue Bible in the pew pocket, you'll find that on page 451. Psalm 10. And to begin, I'm just going to read the first verse, because it's going to preview the entire psalm. Psalm 10, verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble. Those are some very uncomfortable questions, especially for normal church-going Christians like ourselves. It's the kind of question that you don't mind asking internally, but nobody ever really wants to ask out loud because you don't want to be labeled as the one who doubts or has insecurities. Maybe that's what the immature Christian may do. Maybe that's what the agnostic or the atheist may do. But what about us? Do we ask these types of questions? And if so, how could this ever be a part of worship? This isn't a hymn book. Where is God when things are hard? Where is God when we experience Adversity. Where is God when injustice seems to triumph over the world? When asking that question, I'm not asking the intellectual, theological question. I'm not asking, is God everywhere or does God primarily reside in heaven? I'm talking about the emotional, the experiential question. Where is God? Where is God when people are forced into slavery? Where is God when hundreds of thousands are assassinated via genocide? Where is God when racism dominates a culture? Where is God when young children and women are trafficked for sex? Where is God when oppression abounds, when extortion is normal? Where is God? When the pimp, the tyrant, the cheat, and the profiteer are the ones who prosper. That's the question that the psalmist is asking. You may not ask it out loud, but surely you're forced to ask it on the inside. Let me just think about the news headlines. I don't even have to reference the specifics. But the stuff that you normally see plastered on the front pages of a paper or on your news feed, does it ever cause you to ask, where's God? When you think back to just the personal trials of your own soul, those things that you don't ever tell anyone else about, those injustices that you yourself have suffered in times past, the things that you hide and protect from others, that, did you ever wonder in those moments, where is God in all of this? The people of God, through the millennia, are not unfamiliar with such dissonance. The problem is that we know and believe that the Bible teaches that God is is good and that He is powerful and that He is ruling and reigning. We sang about it this morning. But oddly, even though the blessed are supposed to be the godly and the cursed are supposed to be the wicked, it's like The wires get crossed up sometimes, and the people who are most ardently following after Jesus seem to suffer the most. 
And the people who are most blasphemously denying God's rule and reign seem to prosper the most. And so we ask, is he hiding? Why does he hide his face? Look at the text. In time of trouble? Like in the time that we said we would need him? In the time when he was supposed to be there? Even the opening psalm had said it. Psalm 1, we saw it a couple years ago in our study. Blessed is the man who walks in the counsel of the Lord. And then it talks about the, the, the cursed man, the, the one who's going to wither up like a tree. He's wicked. But it doesn't always happen that way. And so the psalms, surprisingly, are filled with what are called corporate laments. The text before you isn't a psalm of praise like you're normally accustomed to. It is a psalm of lament. And there's actually scores of them throughout the Psalter. The people of God, again, being familiar with with such dissonance, needed a way to process what they were experiencing and what they expected to be true. They needed a way to process what they were experiencing and what they expected to be true. So God chose for men like David, for example, to be inspired of the Spirit to actually write out songs for people to sing to lead them through those emotional, experiential times of distress. Psalms of lament will hit the problem head on and confront the rawest of emotions. But I want you to know, friends, that this is extremely intentional. It is going to lead us somewhere. It will start off with a problem and then lead us into prayer and then close us out in praise. Problem, prayer, and praise. This isn't just an autobiography of the psalmist. This is liturgy. This is instruction. He's actually telling you how to get from where you are to where you need to be in those moments of most acute doubt. And so this is a psalm for us. This is a psalm for those that we love. Those who ever experience those irregularities, incongruities between what we know God should be doing and the way things sometimes are. It tells us how to respond when oppression and wrong abounds. Or to borrow from the hymn that we sang earlier, what to do when the wrong seems so strong. And it gives us three steps. This may be one of the simplest psalms we'll ever address together. The theme is complex, but the instruction is clear. Three steps of response to the abundance of evil around us. The first one is that we need to say it. Say it. The second is pray it. The third is praise. Say it. Pray it. Praise. I'll explain what I mean by that in just a moment. First of all, the psalmist would lead us to say what we actually see and feel. Now, for those of us who have grown up in environments where we were supposed to keep things on the inside, this may seem rather odd to you. And yet the psalmist has no problem. He actually will spend over half of the passage saying to God what he feels, how he perceives the injustices of the current moment. Notice in the text, he says, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And now he's going to talk about uh, the wicked. He says, in arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boast of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. And the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sights. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. Verse 6, he says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. Do you notice what he's doing here? He is like letting God have it 
for how arrogant the ungodly are. And it just seems that they go absolutely unchecked. And he is not happy about this. I mean, it, he is truly like tattletelling. He is telling on the wicked and saying, look at what they are getting away with. They are so arrogant. They have such a high view of themselves, and it comes at the cost of other people. In verse 2, it says that the arrogant hotly pursue the poor. And then in our English text, it says, let them be called in the schemes that they have devised. In Hebrew, it could also read this way, they are caught in the schemes that they have devised. They, the poor, are caught in the schemes that these arrogant people devise. Whether it be a pyramid scheme of somehow, or whether it be the extortion or exploitation of some older person who doesn't have family around to protect them, it seems like there's a good market to be had on taking advantage of people who are intellectually or financially weak. And he says, they just do it. They're, they're, they're all about this. They're getting away with it. And the pride of his face, verse 4 The wicked does not seek Him. They're not seeking God. Instead of thinking of God, they say there is no God. And what makes this worse is verse 5. The person who is thinking actively, saying to himself in his heart, there's no God, that's the very guy who's prospering at all times. He's got the Midas touch. Whatever he touches turns to gold. And he doesn't think that God had anything to do with it. I mean, if you looked at The Forbes millionaire list lately? It's not overly drawn with strong Christian types. (laughs) These are people who, if you ask them how they got to where they got, they would say, I did it. I was the one in the boardroom. I was the one in the meetings. I was the one that pulled the trigger. I was the one that knew how to execute. I pulled myself up in true American fashion, by my own bootstraps. I'm the one that was able to make this happen. I remember one of the most successful people that I've ever studied. I won't say his name because you'll be sad. His life motto was, if it's to be, it's up to me. If it was up to him, he's done a pretty good job. The guy's made untold millions. And that's kind of the way it works. And, and the psalmist is leading the congregation. I want you to get this. He's leading like a group of people like us to sing a song about this. Could you imagine if we sang that this morning? We sang a song about how the wicked are wealthy and getting away with it. And yet, the, he's not holding anything back. He wants... God to know that he sees all of this. He says, this guy, like his foes, he just puffs at them. What does that mean? It's just like he laughs at adversity. Like, huh. He doesn't care. And then verse 6, he says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. It's a psychological fact, by the way. Both studies done in the 20s and in the early 2000s as these psychologists try to break down the thought processes of the ultra-wealthy, a common theme that all have, again, from the 20s till now, is confidence. They believe that they can succeed. You know, it's one thing to be able to do whatever you want to do. It's something else entirely for you to portray that in the way that you act and talk. There's a difference between competence and cockiness. And what he's saying here is that they're just downright cocky. They are arrogant, and they get away with it. And that's not the only thing he's concerned about. There's another verse to his sad song. Uh, Look at verse 7. Now he's going to talk about their violence. So not only are they arrogant, but they're also violent. Verse 7, his mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression, and under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He causes damage through what he says. I heard somewhere this week that there are 300 pathogens, germs, within your mouth. People are so scared about like their dog licking them. From what I understand, like a dog tongue is more sanitary than a human tongue. 
But he's not talking about just pathogens. He's talking about that which could actually destroy. Their mouth is filled with things that bring damage upon other people. And I think that most of you in the room know the type. The one who with a few words could totally discredit you and your business and your family and everything you've spent a life trying to build. The the text says that it's filled with cursing. That's when you try to draw destruction upon somebody from supernatural forces. Deceit, meaning that you're doing that which is not honest, hopefully for your own gain or ideally for your own gain. That's why you deceive people. Oppression. Oppression is when you keep someone else down. And then the parallelism. His mouth is filled with cursing. His tongue, okay, there's the parallel idea, are mischief and iniquity. Uh, Other ways you could translate this are damage and destruction. Did you know that the ancient Greeks, writing just a couple hundred years after this, would say that, that fame or rumor was a god and had godlike qualities? And could cause destruction across entire nations. They would personify poor speech, libel, as that which could cause great destruction. And you know why? Because in that culture, they didn't have hard evidence in court cases. It's not like they were running DNA tests to prove things. The way that you won in court was through eyewitness testimony. And so if you were wealthy, guess what? You could pay people off. And you literally got to buy your own reality in court. And all it took was just a few words, a few whispers. And the righteous, the character of the righteous could be totally assassinated. And he is lamenting this. He's saying they have full power of destruction with whatever they say. They are destroying people with their words and also with their works. Look at verses 8 through 10. He sits in ambush in the villages, in the hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws them into his net. And the result of all this, the helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. Notice the violence here. It is like somebody who is like waiting to spring a trap. He talks about him like a lion in waiting. Someone who is actually like waiting around a corner to spring a trap. Somebody who's ready to throw a net. He uses hunting analogies. He uses nature analogies. He uses military metaphor. He's saying these people are on the attack to overcome whoever they can so that they can get some gain. And you know what the end result is? The poor, the needy, the helpless, those who cannot help themselves, they are beaten down, they are crushed, they are oppressed. And you want to know what makes it worse than anything? Look at verse 11. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. They don't care. They do it and they do not care. And the psalmist is just letting it fly. He's saying, God, where are you in this? In the time of trouble, when people are oppressed, when the the, the prideful and the arrogant are actually persecuting the helpless and profiting at their expense, God, where where are you at? This is part of praise. This is actually, believe it or not, this is actually part of worship, to actually say to God the way that we feel. I think that some of us know that this is true in relationships, in strong relationships. We know that the fixing of the problem isn't the only problem to be fixed. The fixing of the problem isn't the only problem to be fixed. This is a a normal debate uh, with husbands and wives in their first year of marriage. The wife thinks that the husband is just so uncaring and cold. And the husband thinks that the wife is just so irrational and illogical. Why? Because they process problems differently. A YouTube video that I saw just a couple weeks ago illustrated this very well. I would encourage you to find it. It's called, It's Not the Nail. It's Not the Nail. 
If you've never seen it, I'll tell you about it. It starts off with this young woman and her boyfriend or husband, and they're sitting on a couch talking, and she's just really opening up to her husband about all this problem that, this problem that she's feeling. And the camera kind of zooms in on part of her face, and you just can see the anguish. And she says, there's this pressure, and I just feel it, and it's just like right here, and it, and it just won't go away, and I can't figure out like why it won't go away. And then all of a sudden, the camera angle switches, and you see her entire face, and there's a nail literally sticking out of her forehead. <laughs> and so the husband responds, look, it's, it's actually, I see it. It's right here. All we have to do to fix it is just to take it out. And she's like, no, no, you're not listening to me. (laughs) And they go back and forth. And he's like, if you would just remove the nail. And the guy's saying, and she's saying, no, no, you're not listening. And that is exactly how it works sometimes. It, It is not just about the problem being fixed. Sometimes it's about being heard. And you know what God, in relationship with us, allows us to do? He will eventually remove the nail. He will one day fix the problem. But in the meantime, he says, tell me about it. I can handle it. Don't bottle it up. Let it out. I think you need to be aware of what I would call pious passive aggression. In which people think that they have such a great theology that they want to talk about how good and how great God is all the time, and they fake it. Because they know that sometimes it doesn't feel like God is being all that great and all that good. And they think that they'll somehow betray Him if they tell anyone else the way that they really feel. And the danger of passive aggression is that it will explode on you one day. It will either explode in your own soul or you're going to let it out to someone else. And what God is showing us in Psalms of Lament just like this is, let me hear it, I can handle it. Give it to me. It seems like I'm not around. It seems like the evil, uh, the evil ones are actually overcoming and they're succeeding. Go ahead. Let me know. Tell me about it. He is a sympathetic listener. I mean, even Jesus himself would exercise lament in time of trial. Do you remember that? As he is facing one of the most difficult moments of his entire life, he quotes Psalm 22, the first line of which is all we have recorded in our text. Why? Have you forsaken me? Do you remember that? Look in your Bible and you'll see it. Jesus was so familiar with lament that in his time of greatest trial and need, that he would actually quote this back to God. He himself felt forsaken. It may have not been the fact, but he felt that way and he expressed it to God. And so also it should be appropriate for believers to come together and acknowledge the realities of living in a fallen world. We say it. We say it. Friends, I would encourage you with this. that We need to learn. I, I don't know that we do this well, but we need to learn to lament well for self and with others. Don't worry, the lament's not going to end here. We're going to transition into other stuff. But guys, it's bad sometimes. And it's okay to call it like you see it. It means something for me to be able to open up to someone. You can imagine this. It means something for me to be able to open up to someone. It means that I have a relationship with them. If the church were a flaming mess, it's not. But let's say that it was just on fire. And things were horrible. I don't think that many of you would expect that I would actually come to you and just let you hear how everything's going right now. But you would expect for me to do that with her. If things are going horribly in your life, in your world, in your business right now, I doubt that you're going to just like offload that on the person beside you before you leave church today. But you would certainly expect that you would share that with the person that you're closest to, a confidant, a friend. God reminds us here, I am your confidant. I am your friend. You tell me exactly what you feel. This is part of worship. So what do we do when the wrong seems so strong? First of all, we say it. Just say it. Call it like it is to him in prayer. Secondly, we pray it. We pray. 
We, we release the angst of the moment, and then we turn to Him in intercession. Notice how the psalmist intentionally leads the congregation to pray to God. This is in verses 12 to 15. You're going to see a prayer request, the reasons for this request, and then he's going to end with another prayer request. I'll read it all together. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. This is strong language here, note it. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. Do you see how he turns to prayer? Now, I want to point out uh, just a normal interpretive mistake that most people make in reading a psalm like this. They read psalms and they automatically assume that it's an autobiographical account of the way that somebody's life was going. There are some autobiographical accounts, and they typically will have a little heading at the beginning saying like, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness. Well, in those moments, you can think that what you see here is David speaking in that moment. He's actually describing his own experience. But when you see a psalm like this, and it doesn't have a heading, you need to know something. It's actually a song of corporate worship, and it was written to lead the congregation to think a certain way. So if you read this autobiographically, you're trying to interpret it, and then you're like, oh man, something must have changed in this guy's life, and now he decides to pray. But we don't know what that something is. The text doesn't tell us. But if you read it not as autobiography, but as liturgy, something that's leading worship, you're going to see, no, this was intentional. Yeah, there's a moment of lament, but now he wants them to move on from lament to a time of actual petition and prayer. This is instructive for us. God says there has to come a point in time where we turn from the situation to supplication. And that's what he's saying here. Notice his particular supplication. He says, Arise, O Lord, wake up, O God. Yahweh, the the covenant name of God, the one in relationship, God, the, the, the naked name of God, His power, powerful one with whom we're in relationship. Wake up, lift up your hand, do something, move. Don't forget the afflicted. These people who are suffering at the hands of the evil ones. Intervene. Now notice this though. He he gives the request. Now notice the reason. It's like he's presenting a case before God. He doesn't just lay it out there. Notice this. He now asks a question. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? That's how they act, right? Like, I'm going to get away with this. But notice how the, the psalmist reminds the readers. He says, verse 14, But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that the problems that they cause, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Do you notice the, the strategy here? He's actually saying like, God, I need you to intervene because... From what I know of the Scriptures, it is normal for you to intervene. I know that you're a God who takes notes. You know what that means? (laughs) Someone who is actually writing it down. You say to your doctor, he says to you, tell me everything that's wrong. And you trust that he is actually listening to what you're saying so that at some point he would provide a remedy. We know that God has the notebook. He sees everything that's going on. Characteristically, he makes great notes and he will call people to account one day. He has historically been the father to the helpless, the person who could not help themselves, the most weak in ancient Near Eastern society. He has provided for them in miraculous ways. He is saying that God is consistent for you to act in this way Because this is the way that you always act. It's like he's pleading with God. And then he gives this strong statement, break the arm of the evildoer. Now some of you wince at just hearing that. You're like, oh, that's awful violent. Why would anybody ever say to God, break their arm? Well, this is poetry. So we may not be talking about actually breaking their arm. But the metaphor is clear enough. Stop them from being able to do what they're doing. In Old Testament literature, the arm just represented power, the ability to do something. In some passages, it was talking about God bearing His arm, showing His strength. 
He said, break it. Lord, keep them from being able to do this. Stop them in their tracks. And so he prays. What I want us to see from this, friends, in the text is so clear, is that there is a time in which we say it to God, what, what's wrong, but there's a time in which we pray and we, we enter into this persuasive relationship with God and we ask Him to work. What I would encourage you to view prayer as, if you want to pray like the psalmist is teaching you to pray, I would encourage you to see it less like a transaction and more like an interaction. Less like an ATM, more like a parent. Transactional prayer is, I put in my debit card that says, in Jesus' name, I hit in the numbers of the stuff that I want, and then everything's supposed to come back with a neat receipt. You don't have to have a relationship with the ATM. But if you want money from your parents as a 16-year-old, there is no card. (laughs) It is, Mom, Dad, I love you. And I've been serving you in wonderful ways in recent days. And you are so gracious and kind and consistent. And you regularly show your beneficence to me as a young one. And you've done this in times past, and I pray that you do it again. We don't ever do it that way, but we know what it is to have relationship versus transaction. Friends, you wonder why your prayers stink? It's because you're treating it like a debit card. God is not a machine, He is a person, and you plead with Him on the basis of the things that He has revealed in His Word. You want to unlock your prayer life in an amazing way? Start praying Scripture. Whatever it is that you really want, tell God about it, and then tell Him why it would honor His name for this prayer request to be answered in that way. Do you remember James chapter 4? I, I would just read it to you. It, it's the, the one, pa- one of the passages in Scripture that explains why our prayers aren't answered. And James says in verse 2 of chapter 4, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And then listen to this one. You do not have because you do not ask. Alright, that's prayer. But he continues. You ask and do not receive... Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. The reason why you don't get some of the stuff that you want in prayer is because you're asking, frankly, for the wrong stuff. And what does the psalmist do? He prays for the stuff, pardon the phrase, that he knows that God would want. Look in your Bible. Just look back at the psalm from last week. Look at chapter 9. And look at verse 13 and 14. There's a prayer there, and I want you to see how the psalmist prays. Notice, not ATM, but transaction, I mean interaction. He says, be gracious to me, verse 13, Psalm 9, 13. Be gracious to me, O Lord, see my affliction, uh, see my affliction from those who hate me. And now notice how he starts saying that this would be consistent with God. O you who lift me up from the gates of death. And now he gives a reason. Look at verse 14. That I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. Paul's there. You see what's going on here? He's not just praying. He's persuading. He's telling God, if you will deliver me from this affliction, one, it will be consistent with your character because you're the one that brings people up in the most dire of situations. And two, this will allow your glory to be spread in the gates of Jerusalem, in the most prominent places. If you'll deliver me in this way, you'll be praised more than you would have if I just die. And so also, we should be able to pray. Oh God, save my children, because if you do, your name can be honored for further generations. Lord, you are the God who does consistently save the lost. Lord, you are the one who can change the hard-hearted. Lord, this is consistent with you and who you are. And you said that if we would ask anything according to your will, that you would give it to us. Or when you pray for provision or even healing. God, I realize that you could be honored in life or in death. But Lord, in this moment, as I draw near death, I see opportunity. I see opportunity for others to hear about your goodness and grace. If you would extend my life, 
Lord, if you would keep me from being immobilized by this particular disease, I could honor you in ways untold. Lord, answer in this way. You are a God who heals from sickness, and so I trust that you would help me now. See the difference in prayer? It isn't just checking off the list. It isn't just inserting the debit card. It is actually entering into a persuasive dialogue with God Himself, and so God will answer. So the psalmist isn't just saying, say it, just let it all hang out. He says, say it, and then pray it. You see problems? Ask God to fix them. Spurgeon was the one who has famously reminded us that prayer bends the omnipotence of heaven to our desire. Prayer moves the hand that moves the world. I like that statement, but I don't like the fact that it's so often quoted out of context. Spurgeon was someone who realized that God's omnipotence only acts on His preordained ends. Friends, prayer is about us getting in alignment with what He is trying to do in this world. And that is why I say we must learn to pray in light of Scripture. If that sounds like a new concept to you, maybe you're not familiar with that. Maybe you're just used to just making a list and praying it twice. Yeah, you call it the Christmas metaphor. Good job. (laughs) What I would encourage you to do is just use that little connection card if you want. Just put your name on it and say, would like to learn how to better pray. Because as a church, we need to grow in this. Prayer is the lifeblood of of the believer, and if it seems more like a transaction and less like an interaction and a relationship, that's a problem, friends. We need to fix that. The text is leading us to vibrant prayer with God Almighty in times of great distress. So what do we do when the wrong seems so strong? We say it. We pray it. And then third, we praise. Say it. Pray it praise. The psalmist will not let us end with mere prayer. When you look at verses 16 to 18, you'll see how he closes this thing out, how he intends for the congregation to to finish off these thoughts of despondency. Look at verse 16. The Lord is King forever and ever. The nations perish from His land O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Do you see his intentional praise here? He's saying, all right, even though it doesn't feel like it at the beginning, I'm still going to state what I believe and know to be true. So there is a moment for faith, friends. It's not always about feeling. Sometimes we praise God in faith, even though it may not align with the feelings of the moment. And what does he praise God here for? Two things. His sovereignty and his sympathy. The basis of all meaningful prayer, the the confession of, of any true Christian, is that Jesus is Lord, that God is in control, that he is ruling and that he is reigning. We throw around the word sovereignty so much, it could be easy to misunderstand it. Let me tell you what I mean by sovereignty. It means that God is God. He does what He wants to do. No footnotes, no asterisks. God is in control. And it's the one thing that you would think, I know the way this works, it's the one thing that you would think, no, 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 if we could qualify that a little bit, I think I'd be okay with the, the, the evil in this world. If I could blame it on somebody else. Friends, God is in control of everything. That is theological bedrock. And he's saying, even when it seems like he is off somewhere in time of trouble, you still will need to, by faith, say he is sitting on the throne, ruling and reigning in the exact way that he knows to be right. That is hard. That is so hard. But we praise We praise in faith that He is King forever and ever, that the nations perish from His land. God regularly exercises His righteous rule over this world. If you just think about the way that the world is right now, by the way, you can just see a snapshot of this. If things were really as bad as the secular evolutionists would tell us, 
It would be absolute chaos in this world. It would just be total anarchy because there would be nothing but the survival of the fittest. There would be nothing but the strongest surviving. But we all know that it isn't just the strongest who survive. There are acts of mercy and compassion, and there's order. And I mean, we look at a beautiful city like Naples, and it's pretty cool to live here. It's a great place to live. God is exercising expressions of rule, and yes, wrong happens, bad intervenes. And yet, by and large, this world is not as bad (laughs) as it could be. We praise God for the ways that He is ruling and reigning. And we know that when those aberrations come, when, when evil I mean, lifts its ugly head in our lives, that God has also regularly ended that. We've seen times in which we've prayed for God to work in amazing ways, and He has. And so we praise. We praise Him for His sovereignty. But listen to this. We not only praise Him for His sovereignty, we also praise Him for His sympathy. It's one thing for somebody to be strong. It's something else for someone to be sympathetic. Look at verse 17. Oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. Notice this. To do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. So that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Do you see how the Lord Yahweh here, He, he listens, He Even though it seems like in verse 1 he's nowhere to be found, now he's saying by faith, Lord, you do listen. You are hearing the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. Lord, you will encourage them. You will incline your ear. You'll actually listen out to what they're saying. How will you do that? Verse 18 is explanatory. By doing justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. So that man who is of earth, may strike terror no more. God's rule is sovereign, but God's rule is sympathetic. Listen to me, friends. He is not just big and strong and powerful and mighty and up there somewhere. He is also close and near and listening. One is God's transcendence. He is above us. He is over us. He is bigger than us. But the other reality we must hold on to is His imminence. He is near us. He is for us. And the psalmist says, in time of great distress, you better praise God for both. What would happen, friends, if you only praised God for His power? You would think, oh, He's awful powerful, but He may not care. I know God can, but I don't know God cares. That would be a problem. What if we just praise God for His sympathy and and the way that He hears us and the way that He accommodates Himself to us? Well, then we would only know that God cares, but we wouldn't know that God can. Well, the psalmist says, in time of acute suffering, you need to praise God proactively for both. He can fix it, and He cares to fix it. This is the way our King works. And so we say it, we pray it, and we praise in confidence, knowing that He will hear those prayers, that He will act, that He will intervene, because He is both sovereign and sympathetic. That's why we must be so careful to say it just like the hymn does, though the wrong seems oft so strong. (laughs) Not that the wrong is so strong, the wrong seems so strong. I think we all would agree that there is a huge difference between perception and reality. We, We know what it's like to present something a certain way or to see something a certain way and then to realize it's not actually that way. I love uh, watching, I don't do it all the time, but just a heads up, but I do love watching from time to time the the PBS show with uh, Bob Ross. You ever seen that? Oh yeah, I got a huge fan. Have you never seen Bob Ross? He's this painter from the 70s, 80s. He's got a big afro. Sometimes he has a squirrel that sits on his shoulder and he's just like hippie painter guy. 
And I, I'm, I'm always just amazed. He starts off with black, I mean, with white canvas, and then uh, you never know where the thing's going. And he'll tell you, like, you know, we're going to make a mountain today. And then all of a sudden, like, he'll take his little, like, paint, I don't even know the paint terminology that well, but the, I don't, it looks like a spackle tool. <laughs> and he'll take it and he'll put it on the black and he just smears it across the middle of the page. And you're thinking, Bob, this is supposed to be a mountain, man. What are you doing? And then he just keeps working. And then all of a sudden, like, but the appearance is like, this is a mess. And then he just he brings it back around to a beautiful scene. Appearances aren't always reality. Friends, you can't read to the end of the book yet. You can't see it. You're not there. You're here. You don't know how the painting's going to turn out. But you can know that there is a sovereign and sympathetic God who is putting every color exactly where it goes, even those black and dark ones that you don't really understand. So where is God when the wrong seems strong? He's ruling. He's reigning. He's listening. He's answering. He's intervening. We sang, This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems all so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is King. Let heavens ring. God reigns. Let earth be glad. How do we, how do we get such confidence? Where does it come from? comes from us saying it, praying it, and praising Him for it. You may not need this right now. It is a beautiful day outside. You may be thinking, like, I'm excited that Christmas is coming. It's just the best time of my life. I get that Psalm 10 may not be where you are right now, but listen to me, you will need it. And just go ahead and memorize it now. Get used to giving complaints to God, praying for God to fix those, and then praising Him in confidence. Friends, if you aren't there yet, you will need it. By the way, the same Christmas that so many of us look forward to, others who have lost friends and family actually dread. You will need this. And may I say, it may not just be you who needs this. Coming off the series on the church, can I encourage you to think not just of me, but we? Do you notice how the psalmist in this is leading the congregation to praise? You may not be suffering right now. You may not be like, like languishing under the acute injustices of the world, but I assure you that somewhere... Someone around you, close to you, near you, maybe even beside you in the pew this morning, really is. And look, friends, I know how this works. I am not a natural comforter. It doesn't work. I mean, it's not like high up on my strengths list. And so when I know that somebody is in like deep emotional pain, you know what my tendency is? I'm just going to tell you. My tendency is like, oh man, I, might, I don't want to, somebody else is more gifted at that. But you know what the text enables us to do? Lean in. Lean in. You say, well, what in the world am I going to do if I've got a brother or sister in Christ that's suffering? Isn't that what we hire pastors for? No, friends. We all together rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. You say, well, what do I do? Together, let them say it to God. Encourage them to vocalize whatever it is they're struggling with, whatever the horror is, and don't correct their theology yet. Let them do what the psalmist does. Let them open their heart before Almighty God and you do it with them for as long as they need and then turn it intentionally to prayer. 
God, you've heard our frustration over these things. Now, Lord, please intervene and work. Provide the comfort and healing that seems to evade us. And then close in praise. That's a pretty simple outline. It is not just for you. It is for someone around you. And if we are going to be the church that Jesus has called us to be, this should be happening regularly in the life of this body. For self, with others. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, You are our King. You rule, You reign, You are sovereign, and You are sympathetic or to Your people. And Lord, again, this is for Your people. Lest it be misunderstood, I pray that those here, Lord, who are in defiance of You, or those who are living life for themselves, those or who do think that everything's going great, even though they've never submitted themselves to you. I pray that you would wake them up or to the, to the direness of their need, that they would see their sin, that they would repent of that, and that they would place their faith in the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. We pray that these enemies Lord, will be turned to friends in faith. But for those of us who are believing already, Lord, help us. Help us to find hope in You. May we be honest about the struggles that we share. May we also, Lord, know how to turn that into prayer and dependence and then to praise You in faith. Lord, equip us for this type of ministry Lord, so that Lord, even Lord, opportunities Lord, for hurt Lord, will be hopeful opportunities for the Gospel. That, Lord, that, that our suffering Lord, would would be translated into something, Lord, useful for your praise and for the good of the gospel and for the growth of your church. So help us now as we praise you. We praise you now with our giving, with our singing, with our fellowship. Or give us confidence in our sovereign and sympathetic Lord as we leave this place today. In Jesus' name I pray and ask it. Amen.